Welcome to Why Is This Good, a podcast by the Naples Writers Workshop. I'm Christine, and I'm here with John. Hey, John. Hello. All right, it's my turn. I was scrambling. I was scrambling, and I found this on a list of fiction you should read, and it was free and available. So it is called A White Heron by Sarah Orn Jewett, and she was a writer in the late 1800s, early 1900s. This is a very old story. Yeah, I was surprised you you sent this one over. You don't usually send old stories over. No, I hate old stories, but I liked this because it was a heron, and we live in Florida, and I'm all about these birds, all kinds of weird wading birds. They're so cool, and I love to read about what are impressions of nature were back then. All right, so I'm going to read a section at the end of this story because, and we'll get into this, I think old stories suck because of the way they tell stuff in order. Like, I don't know what's happening. I don't know what to look for. It didn't pick up for me until I like knew what was going on. So I'm going to read like a section that is kind of the climax. And I don't want to read too much of this. I'm just going to read two paragraphs. So our main character is a young girl and she has climbed a tree and she's looking out from the top. The birds sang louder and louder. At last, the sun came up, bewilderingly bright. Sylvia could see the white sails of ships out at sea, and the clouds that were purple and rose-colored and yellow at first began to fade away. Where was the white heron's nest in the sea of green branches? And was this wonderful sight and pageant of the world the only reward for having climbed to such a giddy height? Now look down again, Sylvia, where the green marsh is set among the shining birches and dark hemlocks. There where you saw the white heron once, you will see him again. Look, look, a white spot of him like a single floating feather comes up from the dead hemlock and grows larger and rises and comes close at last and goes by the landmark pine with steady sweep of wing and outstretched slender neck and crested head. And wait, wait, do not move a foot or a finger, little girl. Do not send an arrow of light and consciousness away from your too eager eyes for the heron has perched on a pine bough not far beyond yours and cries back to his mate on the nest and plumes his feathers for the new day. The child gives a long sigh a minute later when a company of shouting catbirds comes also to the tree and vexed by their fluttering and lawlessness, the solemn heron goes away. She knows the secret now, the wild, light, slender bird that floats and wavers and goes back like an arrow presently to his home in the green world beneath. Then Sylvia, well satisfied, makes her perilous way down again, not daring to look far below the branch she stands on, ready to cry sometimes because her fingers ache and her lamed feet slip, wondering over and over again what the stranger would say to her and what he would think when she told him how to find his way straight to the heron's nest. Well, like I said, I was scrambling. I didn't know anything about this when I grabbed it. I did read it before I sent it to you, though. And I was like, all right, all right. And you're right. I hate old stuff. It reminded me a lot of uh, (laughs) the jumping toad of Calvaris, whatever. (laughs) County. Mark Twain. Yeah. Like, okay, I get it, I guess. I didn't enjoy it. Can't believe I had to read it. It was confusing and weird. And how was that enjoyed widely? Anyway, I'm not a fan of this stuff. So my takeaway when we get to it will be to modernize something like this. But the (laughs) premise is, I think it's a great prompt. The premise of this is that this little girl is like walking through the woods to get home one night and a guy starts following her. She starts freaking out. And I was like into that for a second. But then he's like, no, no, no. I'm just looking for this bird. Can you help me? And she's like, uh, all right. And then it like has this weird skip forward where the guy's just like at their house and everything's cool. He didn't rape her in the woods. I'm like, all right, well, the tension's over. And then he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm looking for this white heron. And the little girl's like, uh, yes, I have definitely seen that bird. But she doesn't like come out with everything she knows. She just kind of like, 
like is thinking about it the whole time and kind of shows him around the woods the next day. And I think they do it over like a couple days where they're going to go out. And then she decides like, I'm really going to impress this guy. And there's one, one line where she talks about like, well, the narrator talks about how even at this young age, she's probably like seven or eight or nine. She has this like twinge where she's thinking I might have a crush on a man. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So she's, she's low key trying to impress this guy for one reason or another. And that's where we find her climbing the tree. She sneaks out of the house first thing in the morning. She's like, I know where to find this bird. I've seen him before. I'm going to climb the world's tallest tree. It gets super Dr. Susie because the tree just like does not stop. And she's at the very top of it. I'm like, what's going on here? And she can see everything from the top of this tree. And she sees the bird. And then that's the section I read. But then very quickly it wraps up and uh, it ends how you're hoping where she, instead of revealing this to the guy, keeps it to herself and acts like she didn't find it. And it's wonderful because it's... He did not shoot the bird. He didn't kill it. Yeah. So it's like, you know, these people that get paid buku dollars to go shoot rare animals, like and that's how they get off. Terrible. And, and this guy back then, I mean, the heron maybe was rare, but there's probably millions of them compared to what there is now. We would never shoot one of these birds these days because it's like, we know everything about them. But back then that was like the safari cat that you have to like go to Africa to get, right? This, this was like unique. And um, some of the criticism I read talked about how this was like some feminist literature of the time for a lot of the ways that this little girl has developed an expertise is leading a grown man around is making like conscious decisions about what to share and withhold even about how safe she feels in his presence at the very beginning you know but for me too there's so much about like conservation and wildlife and things and like the balance between you know hunters who you could argue are most appreciative of resources and things and the balance but who have a weird way of showing it and it doesn't really come up in all the criticism but that's what I like about this because this still to me feels so modern that way right like you could come down to Florida and say like I want to see a panther and I could maybe find someone that could show you and if you were to kill it we'd kill you right because they're protected now but this back then was totally different right these early 1900s so I was just fascinated by it and I love some of the language is beautiful some of the language at the beginning I wanted to tear my eyes out but when she starts climbing the tree it felt like beautiful and poetic and sweeping and descriptive and yeah the paragraph before where you started reading just all those paragraphs started piling up on each other and I, I just wrote in the margin glorious it just felt yes. there's this rising glory about it about the way it was being described it felt amazing yeah it's simple in the sense that it's a it's an actual climax of the story so it's building but she's also climbing a tree as it happens right but it's climactic because we know that upon seeing it she will have a change of heart right like we can yeah. anticipate that even if it's not consciously that it's not just about seeing the bird she's seen the bird before it's about finding it again and what that will mean for the bird so you're you're like what's what's she gonna do when she sees it she doesn't have the gun right she's gotta take this information back and i love that it ended where you hope it ends too yeah you mentioned that you know the beginning is hard to read and i remember the, f- <laughs> I, the first time i read this I, I couldn't figure out what was going on it's like it was terrible I, don't know, I was sick this past weekend so maybe that had something to do with <laughs> it but when i knew how it was gonna end and i knew the main 
kind of shape of it. I reread it. Even the stuff with the cow at the beginning made more sense. Yeah. Yeah. So by the end, you know, because the cow stuff sets her up as this expert of the land, you know? Right. And then she gets to fulfill all that, like you said, as a person who has knowledge that this man wants. And I don't know. She, it was, it was much clearer the next time. And then it, then it just read so easily. Sure. The second time, once I knew what it was, <laughs> but the first that, time it's just, yeah. it's so dense. There's so many words to do. Like, you and know, you're you like, do one thing in a paragraph. This? Yeah. It goes on, yeah. but it's ornate. It's beautiful at the same time. I think I probably said something about something along these lines when we talked about the toad, but jumping it frog. frog whatever. Yeah. All right. I like toads better. Actually, I have pet frog. Sorry, big gulp. <laughs> <laughs> He's right here. You don't He's fill it with shot, so I can't jump anymore, right? <laughs> Big gulp, you're safe. But I think I am a product of our modern day society where if the channel is boring, I flip. And if it goes to commercial, I skip. And fiction, unfortunately, has had to change to accommodate that. So when I say that it was excruciating, it's because I don't know what the point is. Like, what is the point? Like, foreshadowing is something I demand. I need a trailer before I will watch the show. Like, tease me and show me what I'm in for. And then once you have my attention like go ahead and flip it all upside down like the movie trailer for arrival our last story that we discussed guaranteed did not have anything that hinted at the ultimate takeaway it was probably a trailer about aliens but that was fine because once i was into the aliens i was gonna stick around for the takeaway so stories like this written at a time when like they were not competing with big screens or even just like the type of attention span that people had back then like they were probably happy to sit down and like take their time and like plod through something and it didn't feel like plotting and i think that's why i'm annoyed (laughs) so it's not necessarily like a fault of the writing just i think it's like my it's the time for me it is interesting so you know the gettysburg address is famously (laughs) short right the people who spoke at Gettysburg that day before Abraham Lincoln spoke for like three hours. It was like I think they got like one of the best speakers in the country. But that's what you came for. That's what was expected. It's like a three-hour speech. With all this oh like God. ornate prose and like part of the spectacle of it was listening to somebody just be a rhetorician. I like, can be that kind of like speaker who can like play with language and do this these uh, pyrotechnics with words. And then Abraham Lincoln gets up there and just what is it like a hundred words something or less yeah he was tired the photographer didn't even take his picture because they thought oh he's gonna go on for a while i have time to oh, set up no. my camera that's We've why there's no there. pictures that's why there's no pictures of abraham lincoln at gettysburg it was a because, journalist's fault <laughs> yeah and even the newspapers the next day barely mentioned his speech because it was what is that it wasn't a real speech but but then it's the only thing we're forced to memorize in school it's the only <laughs> thing we remember from that day now it is the most famous speech and then you think about this is like long before tv hemingway had the um those rules for when he was a uh, writer like no adjectives like really trimmed down writing which was a direct kind of reaction to what had come before the 19th century ornateness you know like like this but this isn't even like henry james style where it's just like labyrinthine sentences really ornate writing so i think that they're the change that you're you're kind of thinking of happened long before tv but there is something to that yes 
there's something to that kind of change of aesthetic of what we expect from fiction from the way it's written and i don't think this is even like one of the worst examples the story that no. a white heron is not even one of the worst examples of that kind of writing but it does have that element in it you know there's four sentences that describe something that's accomplishing one thing yeah no yeah i know it's not like a product of tv the shift in fiction and the way it's told but yeah it does it does affect like my overall attention span and i yeah, always have to like too. turn my mind to my brain off when i read these kind of stories anyway but you know when i read fiction i know i have to turn my brain into fiction mode not netflix mode not article mode not text yeah. message you know i'm able to do that boomers but <laughs> i don't like it and uh yeah that's why this one was like kind of difficult i do the same thing like every story i read i i see how long it is before i start like all right this is 10 pages oh that's that's long well i have to be able to stomach it i have i want to read it in one sitting yeah. so i do need to know if i'm able to do that but also i think it does help to know because all the time i talk about like anticipating that something will have to wrap up based on where i am physically in a book and i don't think that's a bad thing because even before the internet when we were reading actual books we knew when we were close to the end you know we could feel it we were always checking our progress looking at the bookmark like it's yeah. fine to anticipate it for a lot of like practical reasons yeah and there's uh your memory works physically too there's like a spatial component to your the way you conceive of things and remember things like you you remember oh there's information that i want it was at the top left page of a spread oh. about a third of the way into the book and i you know there's been times when i'm like with that information i flip through the book until i see the page that's familiar looking it's like a in the right place a big w at the top or something it's like, oh yeah, it's this yeah. page and then you find it and uh it's amazing that our minds could do that but you know that awareness of where you are within a story is very uh much a part of the experience of reading it yeah and it helps in a situation like this where you were talking about how you sectioned off this writing right and you were like glorious we knew as we were reading it how much of the story was left and that this was building to the point and that was yeah. helpful because of how meandering the intro was Right? That's right. I'm like, what does this cow have to do with anything? I'm very bored. And uh, it signals to you, not just the writing itself, but where you are in the story, that this is it. This is what you need to watch for. And it's coming. Like, are you sleeping? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's a bad thing. My attention span. No, no. It's just, you know, it's what we're used to. Yeah. Does it look like it's swinging back the other way anytime soon? No. <laughs> Despite the attempts of the New Yorker to make every article 20,000 words. Yeah. None of them deserve to be anymore. <laughs> That's right. A lot of times I'm like, really? Yeah, I don't have like anything groundbreaking for this. I just liked what I thought of when I read this story. I like this concept. Uh, we read a story for the podcast about a future in which taking vacations to rural parts of the country was going to be this exorbitant fee because there are so few oasis like that left. Is that Woodland? Lydia Millet? Yeah, the one I picked. Ha! <laughs> Listen, I describe it for people that don't know the names either, okay? I'm doing I'm doing a service and so are you. But yeah, it reminded me of like any stories like that where we really focus on the preciousness of nature and what we have. I think like living in Florida in 2021, this is top of mind for me. I literally see herons on my street every day when I walk my dogs. You know, we live on a street that has, it's like a dead end and it backs up to Rookery Bay and there are birds everywhere. I, like I've seen an alligator on my street. We have bears 
neighbors on our street, these birds. I, I saw the other day a walking catfish and I got to like ah. pick it up and throw it into the water. Nice. My street is like this tiny little petri dish of nature. And it's so sad because all of these animals are on pavement when I see them, right? <laughs> or they're fishing in a ditch for their meal. But I like, that's what I mean when I say I, this is so top of mind. And so when I see a story about a heron and it's in, in, in all its splendor of early 1900s America where things were still like virginal and rare, it makes me cry. And to, st- but we, we still regarded them as precious in a way. And yet, hundred years later, we couldn't stop ourselves, right? I mean, Sylvia did her part, but we didn't learn anything apparently in the intervening century. Anyway, that's why I like, I don't have anything like really profound about it. Well, when she's at the top of the tree and she's looking out, she's describing like how she can see all the way to the coast, but everything she sees is dotted with human interventions. You know, the ships on the, the mass of the ships on the sea, the little villages, the little churches that spring up out of the forest all here and there. And I just picture kind of just a, uh, you know, like nice carpet of forest with houses and everything. Yeah, I, I agree that there's not a, I'm not, I don't have a lot to say about this one either, but I do really like uh, the natural world and the way it's portrayed here and her facility with it and how her expertise is is kind of the driving force of what's going on here. So it's really nice. And she's nine. It's great. Yeah, I like it because we keep calling it her expertise, but it's her experience, right? Yes. She's almost like a part of the landscape. She just happens to be human. So yeah. he knows that he can use this little girl as his guide but it's not like she studied it she, like the heron is as foreign to her as it is to him it's just that you know she's like a steward of her own land she's the real hunter right that we like to think of where it's like I can tell you where I am and I know what I'm hunting there's like a difference between like the respect that you have for the animal and for nature and the skill that it takes to like meet that animal at their level right yeah. even with all the advantages I mean this little girl feels like the Native American showing the white man how to harvest a crop that they are familiar with, right? Let me show you how not to starve to death, idiot. And this guy's like, oh yeah, thanks. Uh, sorry we couldn't make it work. It's like, yeah, she's an expert. We'll pay her to do this. But she also probably just doesn't know anything different. She doesn't know it's an expertise. Yeah, so I do think there's some beautiful language here. All of the descriptions of nature could probably be used again. It reminded me of the Cormac McCarthy short story that we did where Oh yeah. Yeah, you've got like the teenage boy literally traipsing through the woods and like contemplating the landscape and I mean it's a simple premise or setting almost, but it's like just so ripe for that kind of description. You could do this in any story that has anything to do with landscape and we see it done obviously, but these are stories that spend a little more time on it and describe it a little more beautifully. Yeah, there's something rapturous about the way the experience at the top of the tree that I don't think you don't get that from. Well, you, you do get something similar from Hemingway in his best moments. Sure. Uh, but it's just done in a different way somehow. I don't know. There's good good writing in here. Yeah, it's almost like the reason it works is because the language is as beautiful as what it's describing. Sometimes we read descriptions of setting or even something like woods and people are like, wow, there's a lot of woods and they look like woods. 
it's like, okay, yeah, sure. Um, I'm not trying to read about it as much for where I am physically as I am to enjoy your prose. Like anytime you're going to describe a setting, it should be an opportunity for you to flaunt your skills a little bit. I don't think that it's always an excuse to use like florid language because sometimes we do read stuff and it's like, cool, you literally introduced us to the setting for 20 paragraphs and then never mentioned it again. You know, that's where it's, (laughs) I see what you were trying to do. You came up with a really nice sentence and you want to show us 20 more like it. But in a story like this where, you know, the environment is, is the story and when climbing the tree is the climax, like go for it. And my point about taking time to spend a little more time describing it is just, I mean, is there a way to tie the description of the environment into like what's happening at the language level and my enjoyment of it, right? Like, don't bore me. Don't tell me stuff I don't need to know, but can you pique my interest that way too? Yeah, that's good. Do you have a takeaway for this, John? I didn't have a takeaway when we started, so I'm not exactly sure what my takeaway would be, but it's something about taking your time with things. Oh, the other, actually, maybe we should talk about this. I think one of my takeaway could be, this character is so interesting. We didn't talk about her enough, maybe. This child who doesn't like talking to people, who likes to live out in the wild or be out in the wild and explore. At one point, referred to as having bare feet. And uh, I don't know if she climbed the tree with bare feet, but wow, she's a really cool character. I like her a lot. And letting her at the end keep her secret, you know, there's so much working against her in that moment. Like he's offering $10, 19th century money. Yeah, That's we didn't be, talk about that. Yeah, $10 for where that heron is. And she's like, nope. Yeah, it wasn't. Yeah, I should have mentioned what was at stake for her personally. It wasn't just about the bird. It was also about the money, which, you know, obviously a metaphor. Yeah. But yeah, she is a strong character. She's got like scout vibes. Oh, you like, mean to kill a monster? To kill a monster. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like little uh, tomboy does what she wants. That's nature versus nurture. Like you're born with this strong will, you know, and these, some of these kids, it's like, where did you come from? A little spitfire. Yeah. yeah. She's running around out there like barefoot and making like big choices. One other thing we can mention, and I don't know what to do with it, is the section that I read is where all of a sudden it like takes on that uh, weird voice where it's almost like God. So yeah. like she's, she's climbing the tree and it's like, wait, Sylvie, wait, look at that. Look at this Sylvie. It's really weird. And um, I don't think you could get away with it today it's also like something about it feels vintage to me the wait exclamation point wait exclamation point like it's, it feels like a play look look a white spot of him and that's the only time it does it is it like at the very beginning there and then it doesn't do it at the or at the very end there it doesn't do it after that it doesn't do it before i get why it happens right there but it was weird it almost it feels almost like that wb du bois story the comet where the point of view kind of you know pulls back and it has this mythic kind of religious feeling yeah, to it you're right when i was reading this like the only person i was thinking of is like either this is future sylvie or god <laughs> that's right like you're so high up there and you're having this like life-changing moment and then someone starts talking to you it's usually god another thing we should mention is the dialect oh right it's easy to pass over because it's in the it's dialect it's spelled funny it's hard to read in places but it is really well done and she's apparently known the way mark twain was known for doing it really well she's known for doing it really well the uh she grew up in maine and the uh that maine dialect she's apparently very comfortable with so i noticed they dropped their r's which is i don't know as a linguist i was like oh that's interesting (laughs) as a linguist the new england dropping the r's like kennedy kind of thing back in the (laughs) 
Yeah. It's hard for me to distinguish dialect from like time period, you know, like region versus time period. In my mind, these people just talk like people from a long time ago, <laughs> not from like a specific part of town a long time ago. But yeah, I know what you mean. It, and it is, it does lend to like Sylvia's credibility in terms of like being in touch with the land. She's not talking like them city folk. <laughs> That's right. Well, my takeaway is one that I hinted at at the beginning. I think it's legitimate. I know you laughed. I think it's a good prompt too. But this is a story that I read and I was like, yes, by the end, I am a fan of the theme of the character of a lot of that prose. But the beginning, like all, and you read it twice. So maybe if I read it like a couple more times, I would buy into it. But I also, as I turned my editor brain on and I had all of these thoughts about how I would immediately take the best parts of this and just redo this whole story. And you can make it modern. You can make it 2021. And there's a little girl that's going to show you where to find the panther in Florida, you know, because she's seen it in her own backyard. And I just think there's like so many more exciting ways to tell a story like this. I wasn't excited reading this. I felt almost like not predictable, but I wasn't at the edge of my seat or anything. I feel like you can make it really tense or you can make it, you can foreshadow or I don't know. There's like so many of the kind of modern devices that we're used to and expect. Yeah. Like that one line that you hinted at earlier where uh, Sylvia watching the young man with loving admiration had never seen anybody so charming and delightful. The woman's heart asleep in the child was vaguely thrilled by a dream of love. That's um, a very, I would say, 19th century way to put that. Yeah, she's got a tingling in her nether region. We get it, Sarah. (laughs) That's a common thread, right? I mean, this like inappropriate first love or like, you know, little girls like crushing on like even just like older teenage boys and not in a perverted way, but in like a, oh, I understand now what this is, right? Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's so many more modern ways that we could play with that. I don't know. I like, I really like that idea that I could see myself completely co-opting this and then playing it off like an homage. And the New Yorker would be like, wow, look at this brilliant writer. And it'd be like, yeah, I copied. There's a Chekhov story called the lady with the little, with the little dog or something like that. And then Joyce Carol Oates wrote a a story called the lady with the little dog. It was basically, it was like the same shape of the story, but took a different tack on it. I read them a long time. I don't remember the specifics now but you could definitely do something like that. Yeah, this is like the first story too where I always read stuff and I'm like, you know, I, I might have done it differently. Not not with podcast stuff because we usually pick some insane stuff that you couldn't, <laughs> you couldn't copy or improve really. But especially like in a workshop, I'm like, you have some raw stuff here that is incredible. I just don't love the way it was presented. Can I please take an ax to it? Because it's all there, you know? Yeah. And with this, I'm like, oh, it's all there, Sarah. It's all there. Let me help you out though. I got a hundred years on you, girl. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, anything else on this one? I don't know if I spelled out what my takeaway was, but I'm going to say my takeaway was having the character and the setting so well connected and then the themes of those two being connected as well. Yeah, you didn't spell that out. I think we got off on a tangent and then I just inserted myself. Yeah, I mean, I can think of 10 stories that do that well and it's usually stories like the Cli-Fi stuff, right? Yeah, that stuff, yeah. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I love stuff like that. And that's probably more to the point. It's not necessarily the genre so much as what you articulated on a literary level, which is the two being like inextricable linked. Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. All right. <laughs> Next time I see you guys, I'll have uh, rewritten this story and piggybacked on Sarah's success. There you go. All right. Thanks, guys. 
If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to our monthly newsletter at our website, NaplesWritersWorkshop.com. And for daily writing tips, industry news, and great short fiction, join our Facebook group at Facebook.com slash groups slash Naples Writers Workshop.